Perform this on demand. The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. The Glenn Beck Program. So now major companies like Starbucks routinely make million dollar decisions like their decision to ban plastic straws based on research data from fourth graders, which is, you know, great. And Starbucks has banned the plastic straw, which is also really good, except don't pat yourself on the back just yet, Starbucks, because the lid that you made to replace the evil straw is twice as bad. The Glenn Beck Program. Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It is always great to be with you week to week. Uh, if you're new, I hope uh, you find that voice of patriotism, that voice of an American Muslim that you've been looking for who believes in this Constitution, believes in America, and would die for it, and has dedicated my life to not only fighting the militants like ISIS, but to fighting the root cause, the, the, the root cancer of political Islam, and believing that the defeat of political Islam will come at the hands of Muslims who love our faith, but reject theocracy. And I'm charged, you know, I'm charged this week because I just returned from Aspen, Colorado. We had the first of its kind conference in Aspen of Muslim reformers organized by Raheel Raza and Dr. Alan Altman. Uh, it was a fantastic afternoon of a, a panel of us reformers. I sort of, when I opened, I said, you know, this is sort of like the finals in the America's Got Talent of Muslim reformers, but the, there doesn't have to be a winner. We are, there needs to be more of us. There needs to be a growing movement. And this was the first of its kind gathering as far as a public form of different opinions of how do we recognize that Islam, Muslim interpretations of it, need reform? How do we get American strategy, American public to wake up to the areas that need to be addressed? And what are the steps that need to be, cap- need to be taken in order to begin to address that? I was proud to be joined in the days by the moderator, Raheel Raza of Muslims Facing Tomorrow from Toronto. And uh, she was organizing this event along with Dr. Alan Altman. Also on the days was Tawfiq Hamid, a former radical, who turned and became a mainstream devout Muslim dedicated to fighting political Islam, jihadism, and their interpretation of the Quran. We were joined by uh, Dr. Salim Mansour, from the University of Ottawa in Canada, a scholar who's written many books on the intellectual approach to Islamic Reformation. And then Dr. Ilham Mania, a humanist, a uh, self-described Muslim who is a professor at uh, Switzerland who approaches women's issues and uh, the global dogma of Wahhabism and radical Islam in a way that needs far more attention. And, you know, the five of us on a panel having conversation, uh, debating uh, what the real meaning of a, a certain passage is, what the what the place in history is for uh, the controversial battles that existed uh, and described, some of which in the Quran, most of which in the Hadith, and why they're exploited and why they're used, uh, was just beyond fascinating. 
Uh, there was an audience there of about 100 to 150, and it was live streamed. We'll get the video for you and link it uh, to uh, this podcast and also to my website at the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, eifdemocracy.org. And, you know, there are a couple points I got that I learned during the conference that I think are important to make. Uh, just some pearls of wisdom, if you will. Uh, many people are always asking, the most common question we always start with is, um, where are the voices of moderate Islam? Why aren't there more? And, you know, somebody pointed out something that I guess has been obvious to me, but uh, I just never heard it said that way, and it really resonated. And I think one of the main points is that people say, you know, we had five reformers there. I know of five others. I could probably think of 20 that I would list as leaders able to dodge and bob and weave in the uh, mental gymnastics and boxing matches that exist on television to uh, begin to change public perception. But 20 is not a mass movement of people in the streets. So does that mean we're failing? And I think one of the questioners pointed out, and uh, friends from the Clarion Project were there, Richard Green was there, and he pointed out, he said, these Muslim leaders are exceptional. They have a skill set, an understanding of the problems, of the needs for reform, the areas they've studied and are able to present ideas that have withstood the, t withstood the, 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 the test of time that is a very competitive area that there may be many Muslims ready and willing to talk to the media, but are they able to formulate their ideas and present them in a way that's coherent enough to resonate and come across as a non-apologetic, straightforward voice of moderate, modern Islam? And I think that's one of the questions that often gets forgotten. And the point is that it's not just to, yes, obviously, is the problem their skill set or is the problem their ideology? If the problem is their ideology, they're going to come across as apologists and, uh, and not have a set of ideas that is going to resonate as honest but simply be deflection and denial. But if they are truly anti-Islamist, Sometimes the you know live presentations and Q and A and others make for a conversation that makes them appear not to present a message that would help move things forward. So there is an expertise involved in communication. There is an expertise involved in how to lay out a, a an argument. Uh, I think, for example, when you're talking to non-Muslim community. People always say, Zudi, why are you always on uh, conservative outlets? Why Fox News and others? Uh, why aren't you talking to Muslims? That's who you need to talk to is uh, the Muslim community at mosques, etc. And I say, yeah, absolutely. If I, if I give you one, I talked about this at the Aspen Conference, and I said, what is the biggest obstacle to my work? The number one obstacle is indifference, apathy from the Muslim community that refuses to acknowledge that we have a problem that refuses to acknowledge their responsibility 
And until they begin to step up and join us and uh, help in many ways, they don't all have to be spokespeople, but they can be uh, donors, they can be activists, they can uh, help uh, on social media through viralization of our ideas, creation of memes and other things. So there are many things people can do. So uh, indifference is the biggest obstacle. But back to this issue of why don't we see more voices. Um, 20 voices, if you look at it, even the biggest Muslim organizations, the Islamic State of North America, Council on American-Islamic Relations, these Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups, how, how many spokespeople do they actually have that you see regularly? Probably the same number, 10, 15, 20 max. CARE has 30, 40 chapters around the country. But how many of their folks, whenever I end up debating them, I end up debating two or three of the same yahoos because that's the only ones they feel have any skill set in order to joust with someone who knows what they're doing and knows what they're talking about and knows who the heck they are and the facade that they present themselves as moderates when in fact they're radical Islamists. So I think this is a key point that I wanted to spend a few minutes with you. As you think about where are the voices of modern Islam I'm the son of immigrants. Uh, I think uh, 30 to 40 percent of American Muslims are in families that have been in the United States since 1981. And the, the other are from, uh, obviously, different communities uh, that we could go through. But at the end of the day, some of that is excuses. Um, but it's an important demographic to understand when you say, where are the modern voices? Now, let's talk about the 20 people. The second point I think that was important from this conference is and, and people said, what can we do to help? What can we do? One was to take this panel on the road. And yes, I said there are, we can add the other five or six and uh, ten reformers like Ezra Nomani, Shireen Kudosi, um, you know, and, and um, Soraya Dean, the others that are reformers, that are vocal, that are eloquent, uh, that have been involved. and get them engaged. Get them a platform. Make them household names. Why are we not household names? Again, this is not about ego. It's about if you want to change a community, there is a tribal sense that the Islamists end up being the folks that most Muslims just go to their functions because they're the ones the government, the media, and society entertains and respects as the leaders of our community. If... They, if we had other leaders, reformists that were also respected and brought in as leaders of the Muslim community, I think a lot of this perception would change. And you begin to have real diversity. Diversity is not just ethnic, racial, or national origin diversity. Diversity is about ideological diversity. Liberal Muslims, fundamentalists, Salafi, and the Islamists who seem to think they're the only Muslims that deserve representation use the example again of the Olympics. How many of you knew Delilah Muhammad who won a gold medal for the track but yet nobody heard of her? No. Instead, all we heard about was Ibtihaj Muhammad, the fencer who didn't win. I think she got a bronze or something, but she became somebody who almost was going to carry the torch. Why? Because she looked Muslim. Because she carried and wore a hijab. 
forget her ideas where she appeared to be pretty radical, actually, using her sword to make mocking pictures of ISIS and other things that she might have thought were funny. But she was lifted up by Islamist groups and she didn't reject those Islamist groups like Kair and Isna and others. And yet she became the icon for American Muslims. We need role models. We talked about that at this conference in Aspen. So, thank you to my colleagues, Rahil Raza, Tofiq Hamid, Salim Mansour, Elham Mania, and thank you to Dr. Altman. You know, Dr. Altman said at the beginning of the conference, he said, what he's ashamed, he, he introduced us and was, was very congratulatory, positive. So many supporters were there. But he said there's one major thing he's ashamed of, that here in Aspen, Colorado, this was being held not at the Aspen Institute, who's ignored most of us pretty persistently, even though knowing we exist. Ignored by the Aspen Times, ignored by the Aspen Daily News, despite multiple press releases, despite personal contacts there from our organizations. Ignored by any media in the area, let alone the Aspen Institute, which just had a national security forum that addressed many of these issues. You have local uh, Madeline Albright and many other luminaries that are here locally that have unbelievable um, seminars and sessions on national security, counterterrorism, and they need to do work on counter-Islamism, but it's not been done. And he said he was ashamed of that, and rightfully so, but it's not his fault. He's doing the best he can to change that, but whose fault it is is many on the left who use the Islamic issue as an identity issue and refuse to acknowledge the reality because it makes their brain hurt about theocrats within the communities that they are supporting. It needs to change. But in Aspen, this week, we began to see and embody change. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. Breaching the fault lines of today. The Blaze Radio Network. Pat Gray. These democratic hellholes. When are they going to learn? If you keep doing the same thing, expecting a different result, what is that? It's insanity. Are you insinuating that poop in the streets is not a it's, good policy? It, is not a good... You know, I'm picky enough <laughs> to prefer the poop, especially human feces, to go into a sewer system. Pat Gray. Weekdays, noon to 3 Eastern, only on the Blaze Radio Network. the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. We were talking about the Reformers Conference in Aspen that uh, I was proud to be a part of, and I just want to close out that discussion with, you know, one last comment. I think... At the end of the day, history will show who the reformers are, who the blowhards are, who those who had ill intentions, good intentions, whatever it might be, may never be shown or may be shown depending on the way stories and platforms evolve. But at the end of the day, I'm telling you from my heart that ultimately the House of Islam will only be repaired by Muslims who love their faith who 
believe and articulate and nuance, but yet understand that tough love means calling a spade a spade. The denial, the apologetics, the soft touching uh, of, of the reality that needs a harder touch, that needs a clarity that has been missing from a discourse just completely, completely abandoned because of political correctness. And that was the name of our conference. It was about reforming Islam in a politically correct world. It is possible. It is possible to do. But we need honesty. And there's no place better to start. And I think there's no other place on the planet it will ever happen than in, than in the United States of America. And yes, Europe is going to play a significant role, if not the same. I'm obviously very dependent on the American formulation. I do think that the American identity of what it means to be free, what it means to be devoted to a nation, a nation state that will die for one another's religious freedom, that first liberty, that immigrant identity that everyone embraces immediately by coming in becomes an American. I, I think Europe has some shades of it. You see shades of it in the Netherlands and France and Britain and elsewhere, but it still it's hard for immigrants to separate themselves from a history that they don't feel a part of. And I'll tell you as an American, the narrative that I brought into my being of who I am as a human being was that I didn't need God message from human beings. I needed God's message from God, from the Quran, from his scripture. And ultimately, I didn't need government in order to get close to God. I would be close to God no matter how few freedoms I had. So therefore, freedom, liberty, secular, liberal democracy was necessary to protect my human rights, necessary to protect who I was as an individual, my ability to be human, to create poetry and music. I did not need, I did not need an Islamic state. I didn't want an Islamic state, and I didn't need its jihad. I talked about that at our Reformers Conference, and my colleagues also talked about their own interpretations of what they see as being key to reform, and the one thing we shared was the belief that the primary cancer is political Islam. Wahhabism, Salafism, and all of its forms, whatever its form, that mixture of mosque and state is the primary pathology that creates the cancer that metastasizes into the slope of killing the patient of the Muslim community. And the only way to push back the chemotherapy necessary is secular liberal state and identification that I would only die, that we would only die for our country that treats all as equals before God, before the Constitution especially, and before the rule of law. That's important. I think that's what our reform movement is about. I'll bring you more updates on the Muslim reform movement as they happen and our conferences as they happen. We need to be platformed. We need a venue in which to get it out, and this podcast is one of those venues. The next thing I want to take a few seconds, and that's all she's worth, is to talk about, did you know, BBC, The Guardian, Telegraph, 
France 24, whatever their media arm is called, on and on. Headlines. Headlines. Asma al-Assad, Hitler's wife. Bashar al-Assad's wife. Diagnosed with breast cancer. Treated for breast cancer. The wife of the Syrian president, Bashar al-Assad. Now look, at they're normalizing her as if the first lady, the first lady, of first lady as if it's a democracy of Syria has been diagnosed with breast cancer. Officials confirmed on Wednesday this week that Mrs. Assad was receiving treatment for an early stage malignant tumor. Born and raised in London, the Syrian first lady has been a highly controversial figure. Oh, really? She was one of the 12 people placed under EU sanctions in 2012 over the government's violent. It was described in the BBC as a violent response to the Syrian uprising. And this week, a photograph of Mrs. Assad and her husband was posted on Twitter, along with the words, Mrs. Esma al-Assad begins the first stage of treatment for a malignant breast tumor that was discovered early. The presidency and its team wishes Ms. Assad, Ms. Esma, a speedy recovery. On and on. So, I'm a physician, I'm a bioethicist, and I consider myself a humanitarian. I do care about disease, I care about patience, but I'll begin to care about Esma Assad's little breast cancer tumor when her family makes amends, pays for the war crimes, for the medical care, the human care that 600,000 dead did not receive, that 10 million displaced did not receive. The white helmets had to be evacuated from Syria by the Israeli military by humanitarians from Israel because the Syrian government was massacring unarmed people in white helmets that were trying to provide humanitarian support. So no, it is not humanitarian to care about Esma Assad's breast cancer. I just don't give a dang about her breast cancer, and the media shouldn't cover it. It's irrelevant. Of all the stories that should be covered, you know what should be covered about Syria this week? Here's the story about Syria. Idlib. Idlib. I-D-B. I'm sorry. I-D-L-I-B. I'm so flustered I can't even spell Idlib. Idlib is a town, a large city in Syria that, mark my word, as people talk about doing the backslapping of the end of the civil war in Syria, as the kinetics have decreased, pending in Idlib is a massacre of the proportions of Aleppo's massacre in 2016. Why? Well, most of the jihadis that have maintained a militant posture have gone into Idlib. So they've, they're holed up there. And the Assad regime in trying to extinguish and exterminate the remaining jihadi groups, will use that as a mechanism to justify the complete eradication of much of the civilian population in Idlib. Remember in Aleppo, it became the, again, the center of a lot of jihadi operations for the Islamists, peri al-Qaeda, peri Jabhat al-Nusra, peri ISIS groups. And sure enough, they cut off the water. Four million people began to be devastated and you had tens, if not hundreds of thousands, most of whom were dead, displaced, and suffering. This is coming. It looks like Idlib is under siege. It hasn't begun yet. 
it's still to the stage of prognostication. But if you know any history of what's been happening in Syria, I think that's what's coming next. When we come back, I want to tell you about what's happening in New Mexico. A camp, a compound was found. Some media is talking about it. Most are not. I'll tell you why. This is Zudi Jasser and Reform This. Breaching the fault lines of today. This is Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. This is Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to Reform This on the Blaze Radio Network. It is always great to be with you. There's so much to talk about. There's a story this week that started off with just a little media coverage. Another one of these crazy camps, they said. Uh, A horrific story of child abuse, of torture in New Mexico at a small, near a small town called Taos. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, right, T-A-O-S. And FBI was involved, and ultimately they finally went in after being tipped off that there were kids in there that needed food. And the tip came from one of the leading country's imams, Imam Siraj Wahaj. Why? Because the ringleader of this group, most of whom were his family, included two of his daughters, and many of the children were his grandchildren, one of whom sadly and horrifically succumbed to the situation, died as a result, and our prayers go to him and all all those who suffered in this. But in New Mexico, there was a compound, and The remains were were found after the police arrested everybody involved. So who knows when the poor, disabled, small boy, the grandson of Imam Siraj Wahaj, passed away, rest his soul. The toddler, Abdul Ghani Wahaj, who had been missing for nine months after being abducted by his father, Siraj Ibn Wahaj, Siraj Jr., son of Siraj Wahaj Sr., was brought to the compound with 11 other malnourished kids. Some of the best reporting on this case was done by Ryan Morrow, whose team of counter-Islamists, counter-jihadists, had significant sources with information from law enforcement and others that put the pieces of the puzzle together that I guess the mainstream media just did not want to do. The story started where Abdul Ghani Wahaj went missing on December 1st, 2017, he was abducted by his father, Siraj Ibn Wahaj. Again, his father is the son of Imam Siraj Wahaj out of Brooklyn, New York. Bookmark that. I'll tell you about who Imam Siraj Wahaj is if you don't know who he is. The boy's mother, and this is reading from Ryan's amazing work, Hakim Ramzi went to the police. Parents had been married for 15 years. It's unclear what sparked the sudden rift within the Wahaj family. Siraj Wahaj attributed his son's disabilities to demonic beings and believed that only an Islamic exorcism would expel the demons. The Clarion Intelligence Network 
had reported it, but it was confirmed publicly in the search warrant. The boy's medication was left behind, putting him in peril. Sources say the rejection of medical treatment points to the fact that the ideology held by Wahaj and his co-conspirators stems not from traditional Islamism, but to a cultish fringe. But it matters. Is that an apple falling far from the tree or not far from the tree? So the kidnapper is the son of Siraj Wahaj. So Siraj Ibn Wahaj, the kidnapper, it would not be far-fetched, as Ryan points out, to say that he likely learned the skills in this regard through an Islamist network, even though later they had a falling out with the imam and joined a more fringe cult-like movement. It still, I think, is important to note that the separatism is what leads those two bond, if you will, to the need to separate out of society, to go into compounds, build a wall of tires that would provide a protection, if you will, have arms there. And then the search warrant found that they had plans to train these kids in shooting up schools. The last time Siraj Wahaj or anyone in the public had heard from his son or his grandchildren, the boy was seen with his father and the adults and children in Alabama on December 13, 2017 at the scene of a car accident. Ryan notes that they told the police officer on the scene that they were going to New Mexico to go camping. Press reports indicate that the compound was first set up in late December. It's still unknown exactly why and when the spot was chosen. And there may be more of a story behind it, as, as the Clarion Project points out. Neighbors had seen Abdul Ghani Wahaj at the compound in January and February. This is the baby. A couple, Jason and Tanya Badger, went to the police in late April or early May once they did an internet search of Siraj Ibn Wahaj and discovered he was a wanted fugitive and the boy was missing. The Badgers were involved in a property dispute with Siraj Wahaj Jr., and his co-conspirators. According to the search warrant, Lukman Morton had purchased land nearby but accidentally built the compound on the Badger's land. The Badgers were trying to negotiate a land deal to settle the issue so the compound wasn't even on their property. The Badgers gave permission to the FBI to search the compound as it was on their own private property. So it wasn't even owned on a property by Wahaj. So then Ryan goes in to note that possibly the FBI dropped the ball. They actually sent the Badgers in to knock on the door, not knowing what would be found in, whether there would be risk to them bodily-wise or by arms. And ultimately what broke the case was law enforcement knew there was something going on there but still didn't do anything until they got the tip from likely from Siraj Wahaj senior or others that the kids were starving they needed food and based on that information the FBI was able to raid the place it's on 10 acres of land in the middle of nowhere making it impossible for the element of surprise and initially the reports are that Wahaj and Lucas Morton did not just surrender. 
they had to be compelled or forced to surrender. Now, it doesn't say anything about fire shots or other things being uh, or happening, but that he did have a loaded firearm on him when he was taken down. They had an AR-15 rifle, four loaded pistols, five loaded 30-round magazines at the very least. They were obviously preparing to violently resist, and the tires, walls of tires around the, the compound did not decrease the nature of the compound, security risk nature of the compound. And as Ryan points out, it was a miracle that a Waco-like shootout did not commence during the raid, which occurred on Friday, August 3rd, 2018. And some, five people were arrested, 11 were rescued, 11 children were rescued, and one died. Not in the raid, apparently the remains were found. Their condition was likened to that of refugees from a third world country. So there are many questions arise, and hats off to the heroic work of the Clarion Project in bringing more details to this than any other media has. There's a lot of folks doing good work on this, and there's no doubt that uh, what has been found so far is of the likes of the Branch Davidians at Waco or Jim Jones or others. But information points to the fact that there were plans for school shootings. The kids were being trained in jihadist-type military, and that ultimately... These were radicalized Islamists. Ideology is going to be shown. Uh, certainly the, the father, Siraj Wahash Sr., the imam, was all over Facebook asking about and people to pray for his missing grandchildren. And he obviously was upset with his son. He had a Facebook video that I might talk about next week as more of the details come, but 10 minutes of him explaining how the media, and even call them fake news, he criticized Fox News. His assistant in the video said that uh, this was not news from the source, and basically all Siraj Wahaj points out is that he was just as oblivious to what was happening as everyone else and that the information is just wrong on the public now did he tell us what that camp was what that compound was no odds are we'll see but odds are they're going to say his son was just psychotic his son was just mentally ill as there were signs of some of that and that they had talked about wanting to do an exorcism on the kids etc so the father was trying to get the kids the grandkids probably away from children who had gone awry. But there was nothing about ideology. When we come back, that's the facts that we know. I'm going to talk about his father, Siraj Wahaj. Why does it matter what the ideology of Imam Siraj Wahaj is? The, the person who Linda Sarsour claims to be her mentor, her friend, her guide, why does that matter? Is this related, unrelated? At the core is separationism. At the core, political Islam in the West is a separationist ideology. Nation of Islam, a separationist ideology. So, while it might not preach terrorism, if the father preached anti-American separationism, 
that the root of evil is secular democracy, that the root of evil is America, is Israel, then the type of separationism, the extreme to which you take it, matters less. We'll talk more when we come back. This is Zudi Jasser on Reform This. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser. The Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. There we go. Buddhist Republicans, Sikh Republicans, bad faith. I mean, if you most of them are Christian, that's the good faith to them. Then yes, is that what he's saying? Yes, I guess. Or does he mean like disingenuous, or they're not helping people enough? Is that? Can we get the dictionary okay. again? No, seriously. Speaking that called us out. I think we need it. The morning blaze weekday morning six to nine Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to the last segment this week of Reform This. We were talking about some of the facts that the Clarion Project uh, and Ryan Morrow and his team unroofed at about this compound, this group, most of whom were part of the Wahaj family, were found with 11 children and horrific conditions and thankfully they were all saved except for one that apparently had died much earlier we don't know the dates but his remains were found i believe around the three-year-old but there's some important issues here and first i'm going to start with a personal anecdote and actually if you've been listening to my podcast for some time i did talk to you about my first experience with the islamic society of north america Go back, find that podcast. I don't remember which episode, 30, 40 or so. And I told you about how I was in my Navy uniform, walked into the largest Islamic meeting in America, had given a paper at the Islamic Medical Society that met right before that meeting, and I went, listened to the opening keynote address done by, at the time, appeared to be a very dynamic preacher, Imam Siraj Wahaj, 1995. And he proceeded to talk about political America, the evil policies of President Bill Clinton, and how anti-life, pro-abortion policies were un-Islamic, pro-gay policies were un-Islamic. And he held up the Quran and said, one of the, one of the reasons these secular democracies are so absent of God is because they don't because they use a man-made constitution and he held up the Quran and said can you imagine somebody would say that it's better to have a man-made constitution than a book like this that we know is the word of God to be the constitution of your country it should be our role as Muslims to make the Quran, the word of God, the constitution of the country, and not a silly document. And that's what he told the members of the Islamic State of North America. I was horrified. They all applauded. I was horrified more. And then there was an opportunity for people to go to the microphone. I went to the microphone. They thought that I was going to announce some fundraiser, some gathering, whatever it might be. I said, I don't know 
what this organization is all about. I've heard about your organization. This is the first and the last time I will ever attend it. And that I hope you realize that that speech given by Siraj Wahaj was ultimately seditious. And if you are a officer in the military like I am, you need to publicly renounce your membership. And that's my humble opinion. And if you're a citizen in this country, you should abandon your membership in this organization because Siraj Wahaj just preached sedition. And he may have the free speech to do that. I don't believe he does. Uh, but if you're going to preach against policy, that's absolutely your right. But not preaching the overthrow of the Constitution. No matter how subtle or not so subtle, which I didn't think it was, it may be. And that was Siraj Wahaj. I then walked away. I talk about it in my book, A Battle for the Soul of Islam. You look at Siraj Wahaj's other bio. You learn that in 1993, he was an unindicted co-conspirator in the first World Trade Center bombing. He does address this in his video just a few days ago on Facebook, joking about it, saying there were 177 others. It didn't mean anything, etc., etc. But Wahaj was a character witness for the blind sheik. I don't know if he's trying to minimize the sentencing or what. I'd have to look it up. But at the end of the day, he was testifying as a character witness. So... Bottom line is, is this guy is a few feet down the conveyor belt of a lot of radicals. Later on, Linda Sarsour, connected to Louis Farrakhan with the Women's March, connected to uh, anti-Israel propaganda, BDS, Palestinian radicalisms, Hamas support. She described him at a ISNA meeting proudly saying that now as she's a leading advocate for Women's March in addition to hosting other Islamist causes as her mentor she said he's the favorite person in this room Imam Siraj Wahaj who's been a mentor a motivator and encourager of mine so he went on and and in the things I described to you he was also a a board member on the advisors of CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations, the Islamic Society of North America I mentioned, the Islamic Circle of North America, and the Muslim American Society, all very much overlapping in Muslim Brotherhood ideologies, legacy organizations, and ultimately ideology. So the Muslim Brotherhood ideology is about a global caliphate. It's about doing away with state lines, about uh, negating the secular state, looking at the West as the land of war rather than the land of freedom, looking at the land of Islam as the land that they seek to create, to weakening the West. And these are all things that can be found permeating the speeches and the talks of Siraj Wahaj as he raised money for CARE, as he raised money for MAS, as he raised money for ICNA, his Islamic Circle which has still on its homepage is ton of information linked directly to Diobandi radicalism out of Pakistan, which is similar to Wahhabism, to the ideology of, of Maulana Maududi, the uh, founding father of Jamaat Islamiyah, which is the Muslim Brotherhood equivalent of the Indo-Pakistani region. So, Siraj Wahaj's Islamism, his political Islam, his anti-Americanism, his anti Israel, his anti-Semitism is part and parcel of a separationist idea, no matter how non-violent, no matter how peaceful it might be, it is one of the inner core circles.
of political Islam that is the primary motivator for a separationist movement, radicalization. Now, that radicalization for many may not lead to joining Al-Qaeda, joining ISIS, or joining an Islamist cult that calls themselves something else that many conveniently in the politically correct media can say that, oh, this is just a, a family gone awry that was doing exorcisms and crazy and has nothing to do with Islamism. But if they had called themselves Al-Qaeda or had mentioned Awlaki, Imam Awlaki or other radical Islamists, that somehow that might have made a difference. But the bottom line is, is, ladies and gentlemen, this is about a disease. The disease is Islamism. The disease is a, a desire to establish Islamic rule. So when you have, just like when you have a drunk driver that goes on the wrong way, driving down the wrong side of the highway and kills a whole family and was attempting to kill hundreds of others until he or she was stopped. It's not just that one driver. What is the disease of alcoholism that drove that? The alcoholism, the gateway drug for the Siraj Wahaj juniors of the world. There is no better analogy, metaphor, of, of what we're dealing with than this leading imam of the Muslim Brotherhood type ideology in the West, of the Islamist ideology whose son turns out to be a cocaine addict, if you will. Not with drugs, but with Islamism. So, listen, we can all, God forbid, therefore by the grace of God, go I. We, nobody knows, not every sin, not every deterioration of a son is as a result of the father or the mother's ideas. But when the son becomes a radical jihadi and the father is an icon publicly based on saying that Americans are bigoted, based on saying that Americans are, are part of some Israeli conspiracy theory, and that ultimately he knows the real Islam and that the Islam is not a threat and yet he preaches changing the constitution with the Quran. He preaches a, a pro-Islamism. There is a brochure that clarion project just found of a jihadi camp with imams called the jihad camp it says join learn from scholars how to be brothers and help each other and save each other it doesn't show any militancy but this is from 2000 a jihad camp now things probably changed after 9-11 now you know why the brotherhood was so upset with bin laden and why and, and his attack of the Twin Towers, because it outed a lot of what was happening in this country in radicalization that was not being seen under the cloudy lens of religious freedom. So hopefully this cancer, this gateway drug can be seen for what it is and not just look at the wrong way drivers of drunks or the whack-a-mole of terror incidents. There is a connection. And an imam who prides himself on teaching Islam and being an icon for a so-called moderate mainstream Islam is going to be held accountable when the apples that fall from his tree become militant, wacky, cultish jihadists. That has to be part of the conversation. And the fact that mainstream media has not made it part of the conversation proves that the mainstream media, ladies and gentlemen, 
is more concerned with protecting the reputation of American Islamist groups so that they maintain their stranglehold on representing American Muslims than they are about the truth. A friend, I think, uh, um, um, I'm trying to remember who it was uh, that mentioned this, uh, but uh, he said, imagine if Franklin Graham's son had a cultish sect that had done something similar that was about to commit an act of terror. Wall-to-wall coverage against Christian communities, evangelicals, against the NRA, on and on would have been done because that would have been politically expedient as part of the hyper-partisan obsession. That's part of American discourse today. But no, if it's about Muslim theocrats, forget America's origin in fighting theocracy. We will protect the politically correct Muslims, whether they're Islamists or not. That needs to change. More to come on this story next week and on on Reform This. God bless you. We'll talk soon. This is Zudi Jasser. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.